0: Let's open our Bibles to the book of Hebrews this morning. It's a formidable book for us to begin, and uh, I want to begin by reading it. I want to read a few verses just to get us started. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Stop there. How are you supposed to understand and approach a book of this scale In this magnitude, it's 13 chapters long, and it is a book that reminds me of approaching something like the book of Romans. This is a weighty, meaty book. I think probably the most important thing to try to grasp when you look at this book in its entirety is to ask yourself a question like this, what's the point What's the point of the book of Hebrews? Because if you get the big idea, then at least you have something to hang on to as you go from verse to verse, chapter to chapter, throughout 13 of them. What's the point? We're going to get into some of the controversial issues next week. Authorship, I'm going to tell you who wrote it, (laughs) right? If you've studied Hebrews, you know um, that's not an easy answer, and then Who was it written to? To whom was this book written to? And all of that. But I think understanding the big idea is a way to approach this book. And understanding that unlocks it. It's like a key that opens this book to your hearts. And that's what I want to try to begin to explore this morning with you. What's the point? It's an intimidating book, right? One thing I did this summer early on when I had a few weeks off, I opened Hebrews and just used, used a pencil and wrote notes, devotional notes in the white spaces, in the margins to help me understand it. But I think because I had an idea going in of what the point of Hebrews was, it became very devotional and very pleasing for my own heart my own soul really you want to know what this book is trying to say this letter or sermon letter what it's trying to do in your heart so that you can be fed really fed through this series what does hebrews mean for my life that's the question Scholars will debate on the key point of the book of Hebrews, as I've read several. You know, in one sense, the book could be read just as a theological book, a doctrinal treatise, where you're trying to tie together the Old Testament with the New Testament. What is the meaning of the Old Testament in terms of New Testament Christianity? But I want to say that the theology always in any book of the Bible should drive you to some sort of devotional response, some sort of application. It's not enough just to fill your heads with knowledge, right? Even if you're getting the knowledge right, it needs to move you somewhere. So what's the point? Well, there's two positions. You can take it theologically and say the point of the book of Hebrews is... The supremacy of Christ. The supremacy of Christ. And that's not a bad point to hang on to as you read through the book of Hebrews. I would dare say that that is one of the primary thrusts and goals of this writer. The supremacy of Christ, saying that Jesus is better. He's superior to all things. He's the penultimate of everything that you could experience or want or know about in this life or the life to come. Jesus is supreme. It's a good point. But again, 1 Timothy 4, 16 is where Paul told Timothy, guard your life and your doctrine. And the supremacy of Christ is our life and doctrine, but the author of Hebrews is making a very doctrinal, a very weighty, a very meaty go at creating this grand picture that Jesus is better than everything. We're going to talk about that. But that has to not stop there in your hearts if you're going to really get into Hebrews and really be moved forward in the Christian life. So let's look at the first idea, the first Position That is the superior of Christ's position. That This is the theme of the book. It is, but I don't want to stop there. There's point two as well. The superiority of Christ. Because without action, we're really creating a false dichotomy, but we have to start with Christ as superior. First of all, Jesus is a better sacrifice. All of the ceremonial law that really is documented in the book of Leviticus for the ceremonial sacrificial system. All of that ceremonial system was good, but it wasn't enough. It was support for an Old Testament saint to work through his or her issues of repentance. It's important, by the way, to know The book of Leviticus perhaps to have read the book of Leviticus at least once in this lifetime if you're really into Bible study you should come at 9 a.m. to Nathan Schneider's Sunday school class he didn't know I was going to plug it which chapter are you on going into 19 19 out of 18. 18 okay well it's not too late it's not too late But it's all online and his notes are online, I believe, as well. So you want to have some handle on the book of Leviticus as you're reading through the book of Hebrews because the author of Hebrews is making the clear case that Jesus is a superior or better sacrifice. He's the once for all sacrifice. He's the sacrifice that was necessary. All of repentance and forgiveness from the old testament to the new testament has always been by grace but the ceremonial law that's depicted in the book of leviticus was only a type it was only to prompt us it's like you know a shadow of things to come it's it's not the full measure of what was meant in the sacrifice until jesus came and clarified what all those sacrifices meant The story of Israel is one of sadness to us. It reminds us of of our own sin where they would fail and the priest would fail and there would need to be more bloodshed and more bloodshed and more bloodshed. But this system, it was a symbol of failure and a symbol of promised grace for those who were truly repentant people. The need for sacrifice never ended because people and priests continued and continued to sin. Just like in the New Testament where we look back to Christ's once-for-all sacrifice, the need for the application of that once-for-all sacrifice never ends. 1 John one seven: The blood of Jesus is continually being poured out on our accounts. 1 John 1, seven. So the central storyline is... One of Christ being better. He's the provision as the perfect priest, the perfect sacrifice. There was a contrast that needed to be made between an imperfect provision given under Moses' leadership and an infinitely better and perfect provision and sacrifice that was given in Christ, offered by Christ as the high priest. God's only son is Messiah. He is Jesus Christ and he offers the better hope, the better promise, the better sacrifice. Practically, in terms of ministry in the Old Testament, there was limitations with even the sacrificial system with priests. If you think about it, practically in the Christian life today, we have an unlimited opportunity to serve. And this is a plug for you to sign up later at the service table The priesthood in the Old Testament, they had to be careful. They didn't want to die by inappropriately entering into, in an unprepared state, entering into the Holy of Holies where they would be immediately struck down by the holiness of God, being in the presence of a God to whom we should fear a consuming fire who is untouchable. In the New Testament... The access is given to us as a bold access, Hebrews four sixteen. come boldly enter into the holy of holies. It's a dramatic difference in terms of the ceremonial system of serving and doing and entering into the presence of the Lord and in the New Testament, how we through the shed blood of Christ, the once for all sacrifice, the superior high priest and the superior sacrifice offers us ministry untold. Ministries to pray, ministries to give, ministries to, to proclaim Christ, ministries in terms of repenting and praying with people for repentance and seeing restoration. This is all part of the New Testament church, what First Peter calls the priesthood of the believer. How awesome is that? So we have the supremacy of Christ and ministry freedoms. This tie that's made between the Old Testament, an inferior priesthood, and the New Testament, a high priest and a priesthood is an amazing theme, but it really is a subset even of a greater theme. And we'll see these in the first couple verses of Hebrews 1. Jesus is superior in all ways, in all things. He is better in everything. Jesus is better in every way. And the author of Hebrews makes this broad case and this broad theme. Look at verse 1. Long ago, in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. Let's stop there. These verses are opening the book of Hebrews in terms of Christ being the superior Revelation of God to the church. Christ is the ultimate means of communication to us as New Testament Christian Christians. This is God's revelation. That is a theme opening up this book of the Bible. Long ago or in the past, verse one, God was speaking um, pre Christ. He was speaking in diverse ways, many ways. And if you understand the Old Testament storyline, you know that God spoke to his people through a variety of ways. This is what theologians call modes of inspiration, modes of communication. In the last days, verse 2, by contrast, God has spoken by his son, the son revelation the S-O-N revelation. He's revealed himself uniquely to us by son. So scripture depicts God's self-disclosure in the Old Testament in a highly diverse way. Scripture is showing things like Jeremiah who's getting um, direct dictation and speaking in that way. Think about the finger of God as God inscribes Commandments for us to follow on Mount Sinai. Could you imagine that? Or the finger of God entering into um, the Daniel scene in the book of Daniel. It's amazing. It's amazing. But just like New Testament inspiration, authors of the Old Testament spoke in many ways. History, prophecy, songs, poetry, prayers, and the law. God's been superintending and speaking through these ways, but also he spoke audibly, spoke audibly to Abraham. He spoke audibly to Moses. Think of through a burning bush, God addressed his man. David spoke, and I read this earlier through his own personal experience, writing poetry like Psalm 23. His modes of inspiration were profound and are great, but when The writer of Hebrews is saying he has spoken to us, verse 2, by his son. He is saying that the son of God is the supreme and superior way that God has spoken. This is God has spoken through the Christ event. Christ came fully God, fully man. Christ has come to us. Christ came historically. Christ preached. Christ lived perfectly, died perfectly. Perfectly was raised perfectly. He's the perfect, complete revelation to us. He communicated everything into existence and now through the Christ event is communicating to us as his church. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God has been found in our hearts as believers, Second Corinthians 4, where the lights have come on and Christ speaks to us personally. He's with us always, speaking to us by means of the Holy Spirit through the word of God. We have Christ and the original language here is profound because verse two, he has spoken to us in Huio, which is in son. There's no definite article there. It's talking about the quality of the thing, Christ essence, Christ is the son revelation. He is, God has spoken to us through Christ personally. That's what it's talking about. Not just reading about Christ and it's not just that Christ spoke like the prophets did. All that's true. But it's that God is speaking to us through the word. Think of John 1.1. 1, 1. What a parallel, right? John 1.1. 1, 1. Let's just look back there quickly. You might turn in your Bibles there and keep your finger there. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. This is a Trinitarian reference to Christ who has always existed in fellowship with the Father. That's the reference to God. And we know that the Word here, all things were created or made, verse 3, through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. This is Christ, the Creator. And then verse 14, and the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us. Christ came here. The Christ event. Talking about Jesus as the word. The communicator. The revelation to us. Who clarifies the Christian life for us. Who ties all of God's revelation together. Who makes sense of everything in our lives. He is the word. is the ultimate word. Again the penultimate of communicators. And communication to us. It's interesting that as we will look through these first few verses of hebrews they parallel very specifically to the first few verses found in john 1 christ is creator sustainer inheritor we're going to see all of that as this plays out but i want you to see something maybe even a little bit more specifically in a word that's repeated more often in this new testament book than any other new testament book we have and that is the word the greek word kraton in verse four you see it as superior in the english standard version perhaps in your translation or others it's just the word better it's the word better and that is a major theme in terms of the book of hebrews that's what i was talking about before he is superior not just his high priest not just his sacrifice he's better in every single way this word kraton he's better Look at verse four of chapter one, having become as much better or superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Jesus is better. He's better than the angels. In chapter three, we're going to find out that Jesus is better than Moses. In chapter four, we're going to find out Jesus is better than Joshua. In chapter 5, we're going to find out Jesus' high priestly ministry is better than Aaron's high priestly ministry. He's better. It's stated throughout the remainder of the book. He's the better tabernacle. He's better. He's the best and better sacrifice. Well, let me ask this question. Why would the author of Hebrews, whomever it may be, why does he use the word better over and over and over again? Instead of just saying it all in one fell swoop, Jesus is best. He's the best. Why this rhetorical approach? He could have just made a flat statement, right? There's instead an axis after axis, a comparative after a comparative. Instead of a superlative, it's a comparison, a comparison, a comparison of why Jesus is better. The author just is going to repeat this refrain. He's better. He's better. He's better than this. He's better than that. He's better. It's supposed to be born in the minds of these readers for what they are going through, for what they are perhaps tempted to return to in the Old Testament sacrificial system. I think a fair case could be made that they were ducking for cover because of persecution, trying to go back to a system where they could get out of being just branded as radical New Testament Christians. They wanted to compromise a little bit. And Jesus is picking off each temptation to compromise. He's saying he's better. Jesus is better than everything. And how does this apply to your life? What axes do you have in your life that need to be tipped towards Jesus being better? And I'm not just talking about sin that you need to just dump There are sins that you are so obviously aware of that you need to go, I'm dumping that today, right? Based on those testimonies, I'm dumping this, I'm dumping that, I've been trapped, I've been ensnared, all that is obvious. But what more neutral categories do you have that aren't so specifically sin, but for sure are catching you up short where you cannot say, yes, Jesus is better than that in my life, right? All of these axes need to tip where you say, no, Jesus is the penultimate of my life, of my affections, of my satisfactions. And there are things that pile in our lives, things that are neutral or negative to neutral to even positive things like your children or your marriage or your whatever, good friend, your money. You say, these are good things. But if they are categorically better things in your life and in your mind, Hebrews is challenging that posture. Do you see what I'm saying? There are things that just need to tip towards Christ as we grow. The life clutter can obscure the beauty and supremacy of Christ. The quote-unquote non-things, the non-issues, they're not... So dramatically horrible, but they're just nons in your life. They can stamp out your fire and your value of Christ, things that vie for your attention. So there's a distinct message of Hebrews here that Christ is superior of the Old Testament system. He fulfills Leviticus. He is, he is, he is better. And that's a great thing to hang on to. That's theology. That's what makes this book of the Bible distinct. That's what makes this book of the Bible an octave higher theologically than perhaps other books of the Bible where we read for something like this. This book is chocked full with the Old Testament, whereas in comparison, other books of the Bible don't have this going on. It doesn't contradict Paul's theology, but there is something that we find uniquely Um, fascinating and sophisticated about the book of Hebrews it's easy in essence to become dazzled by Melchizedek or by the treatment of angels here or by these Old Testament references or the tabernacle or the references to a kingdom here compared to the promised land and the kingdom that's to come where we are seeking to ultimately find our rest all these things are amazing and they're enjoyable but I don't think the author is trying to just amaze readers. He's not just trying to draw us into some kind of amazing discussion, even about the supremacy of Christ. The supremacy of Christ is not an end in and of itself in terms of the Christian life. He is supreme. But the question you have to ask is, how is this supposed to move you and how is it supposed to move you forward in the Christian life? Moving forward in the Christian life. How does Christ's supremacy drive you in this life, sustain you in this life to persevere all the way to heaven? And that's point two. And we'll just touch on this this morning. Point two, running the race set before you. This is another major theme of the book of Hebrews. This is a theme where If you're trying to read Hebrews practically, personally, applicationally, you might say really the issue of Hebrews is a theology, a doctrine that calls the Christian to run and keep running, to marathon in the Christian life. Hebrews drops in several exhortations along the way that are perhaps a bit severe, They might make your collar a little bit tight as you read them. They're sobering warnings that are permeating this book of the Bible at every turn. They're so severe and so dramatic that a lot of scholars will try to excuse Christians from having to read them, from having to think about them, from having to examine your own life over them. I'm telling you, seriously, respected scholars don't know what to do with these warnings being given through a new testament letter sermon to the church but they're there they're exhortations for us we shouldn't flatly disregard ourselves from reading them or excuse ourselves from examining ourselves I think a lot of times people say, well, within the church then and now you always have the wheat and the tares, the sheep and the goats and the sheep and the goats. And that's all true. However, the author's not saying I'm now segmenting what I'm saying to you goats, right? He doesn't do that. It, it, the Bible doesn't work segmentedly like that. It doesn't segment the audience. I don't think really anywhere. I mean, Jesus did address the Pharisees. There are overt ways the Bible at times does do this, but in general, a, an epistle is addressing a congregation. And the assumption there is you have people on the spectrum of unbeliever all the way to full-fledged growing Christian and everything in between. And so you're supposed to say to yourself, does the shoe fit? If it does, I need to wear it. I need to figure it out. So these warnings are come to Jesus moments, come to Jesus prompts or meetings for self-examination. So what I want to do, just as we're coming to a rapid close, is fly over some of these warnings. Do a flyover just to give you a taste of how much is here and all of what's going on in this book. Hebrews 2, 1 to 4. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. Verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Verse 4, for God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed to his will. Hebrews 3, take care, brothers, lest there be any of you, verse 12, any of you, an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. These things sound like the hard statements of Christ. Hebrews 4, 13, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Hebrews 5, 11, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, for it is impossible in the case of those who have been enlightened who have Tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the holy spirit and tasted the goodness of the word of god and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the son of god verse he- hebrews ten twenty six. for if you go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins 10:36 for you have need of endurance so that when you've done the will of God you may receive what is promised Hebrews 12:25 through 29 listen see that you do not refuse him who is speaking for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven at that time his voice shook the earth But now he has promised, yet once again, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now... This is a striking emphasis in terms of warning after warning after warning. And I just skimmed the surface of all of what really is there that we're going to unpack carefully. But you have to understand that warnings are meant to shake us. A warning like you could come to the place where your repentance isn't real and you become aware of that where you become aware of the fact that you were raised in the Christian church, you did experience the light and power of God, but you faked yourself out into believing you were safe and you're really not safe at all. That's an important warning. And a lot of times, just like me in marriage, Judy can't, I don't think she would testify to this, but unless I hear it straight, sometimes I'll just ignore it. I know you can't believe that, (laughs) right? Sometimes you gotta be shaken up. You gotta hear it. It's got to be straight. It's got to be tense. It's got to shake us and warn us and admonish us. And that's what this author is doing here. But put positively, let me say this. These are calls to keep running. This is the coach on the sideline saying, don't quit. Don't stop. Don't give up. I'm exercised. Don't do it. Don't be a non-runner. Be a marathoner. You're only a half marathoner if you stop at this point. Be a full marathoner. That's what this author is doing. He realizes that, that the stakes of apostasy are high and are eternal. And I'll reassure all of us, you cannot lose the salvation that God has given you. You can't. But we are still at the same time called to fulfill a race that we are called to run and true Christians will run this race and will respond to warnings like these by running. So there's a positive way to put this, to persevere, to hold on, to keep believing all the way to the end. So what's the main point of this letter, this sermon? Well, it's this, I just tie the two points together. It's the supremacy of Christ calls us to keep running the race to the end. Right? Jesus is better, so keep running. Jesus is better, don't go backwards. Tip all the axes this way. All the nons, all the sins, all the things that we think we love better than Christ. Let's remember, we love Christ, so we're going to run. His priesthood, and sacrifice are central. The work of Christ is meant to overwhelm us, but it's meant to call us to run next week i'll introduce why these early christians were tempted to fall away we'll talk about who they were what was going on but going out on a proverbial limb i'm gonna summarize the point of hebrews by just reading hebrews 12 1 to 4 listen as i read and listen with what i've said all up to this point have all of that in mind as you read these verses. Hopefully, they'll, they'll hit you in a fresh way. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith,